Hey, Late Nighters. Welcome to Late Night with White. I'm your host, C.D. White, and we're just mere days away from Valentine's Day. That day when millions, perhaps billions, are spent on candy and chocolates and hearts and dinners out and clothes and purses and wallets and ties and golf clubs. But before we get to that, we get to talk about literature. A lot's been going on. We have the um, Chinese Luftballon in the sky shot down by uh, Biden's administration. We've had um, the heckling of the GOP caucus during the State of the Union. We've had uh, the burial of another police murder victim. We've had walkouts over racism. We have DeSantis in Florida showing us what 1933 looked like in Germany. But right now, at this moment, late at night, as you're winding it down with your tea, your cuppa, your sippy sip, we're well met. Hopefully you're in good health. And uh, right now where I am, it's raining. And there's supposed to be some inclement weather coming in. And pardon me if I'm thinking about snowstorms and down trees and not having to get up the Monday after the Super Bowl. Like, why isn't that a holiday? I don't I don't understand why well, I have to get up and go to work after what's going to be, hopefully, a very good game. Two African-Americans, two young guys, two hungry players. Uh, um, meeting each other on the gridiron, two brothers on opposite um, sides of the t- of the field as well. So it's a game for the history books. Um, it's amazing to me that as we're in history and living history, things are changing. Um, I'm one of those optimistic, facing forward. Things are improving. We just have to be very careful at not going. Uh, too far back, not being pulled too far back, because apparently if you read history, there's always those people who aren't wanting to go forward, don't want to go to the moon. Um, The earth is the center of the universe. Um, Just all the things that we've debunked and have changed our worldview, but at that time, in that moment, someone was saying no. It can't possibly be true. Why? Because it's always been this way. So tonight, what I'm thinking about is literature and the devil. Literature and the devil. This arch nemesis of God, this villain whom all other villains are modeled after. When we talk about literature, we talk about comics when we talk about all the movies that we enjoy it's really a rehashing of this rivalry this uh brokenness that even precedes you know the bible remember the bible was oral um tradition passed down passed down finally written some say by moses but before moses there were other writers there were other nations there were other kingdoms who we're dealing with this idea of a good 
an essential, benevolent, all-purpose, um, arching good, and then its opposite, uh, a malevolent, chaotic, destructive, evil. That was its adversary. And so for us, in, in our 21st century mind, um, the devil is its resting place when we talk about evil. And I was on the way to work and I was thinking, and I've had this conversation with my mom, who's a theologian, are demons and devils as evil as we are? Are demons and, e and, and Satan as evil as we are? Because when God first destroyed the earth, there wasn't talk about a demonic presence. It was the thoughts of mankind that were so wicked and so wretched that God sought to start all over again. Right? And so that got me to thinking, well, um, if Satan is the arbiter of all the evil in the world, what does literature have to say about this character? And we're approaching it from a literary sense. We don't want to get into the theologic, um, apologetic sense of, and I guess you really can't help but to get um, religious in this sense, or apologetic in this sense, when you're talking about good and evil, and you're talking about the character of the devil, which we know has evolved um, through the millennia to take different shapes, meeting every modern norm, norm and um, changing as humans' mind and grievances and understandings change, right? So we'd have to start I think it's logical to start when we start examining the character of Satan or of the devil. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, where he is, um, and, and some text has been on earth, was here when God formed earth and the Garden of Eden, and other theologians' mind uh, fell to earth. Right? And begin to wreck God's creation. So, um, but in any case, we come into a story where God has made the animals, the earth has filled the void, and his last creation is woman. And they've been given some very strict rules uh, about their presence in the Garden of Eden. Don't eat of the tree of life. Seems simple. All these things you can have. Just don't touch this. And we're told in this section, in this encounter with Eve and the devil, that he enters a serpent. And the serpent is his instrument because the serpent, uh, quote, was more crafty than any of the wild animals that God had made. So we have a certain character, too, of 
the entity or the the creature that can be used by Satan, not the dumbest, but the most crafty. And remember, Adam had seen all the animals that God had created. He paraded them before Adam to get their names. And somehow, perhaps, he's overheard this conversation between Adam and Eve and God. And we don't know at what point after their creation. Was it centuries later? Millions of years later? Because we don't know the timeline of the garden. We have the seven days of his creation, right? But after that, it becomes quite nebulous. We have a human history that is uh, both foreshortened and elongated. We don't know how long they were in the garden. If boredom had set in if malaise had set into their hearts, if they were already thinking things, or Eve in any case, that the serpent sensed and the devil could use. So his series of questions to her began to ignite and a conversation that really hasn't ended, right? About the nature of God, the nature of his commands, and the nature of our obedience, right? Did God really say, did he really say that? This adversarial, lawyer-like, getting Eve to think thoughts that perhaps she hadn't thought before. And we know that at the end of their conversation, Eve is now looking at this tree and its fruit and thinking very dangerous thoughts. She's thinking, hmm, it does look good. And I've denied myself its bounty, but it does look good to eat. And not only does it look good to eat, I would gain knowledge and wisdom that I currently am lacking. And not only is it good to eat and good for knowledge, but then I will become like God, knowing good and evil. So... The snake, Satan, the adversary, not only tempts Eve, but he gets her to change her way of thinking. It's not just a temptation. It's a changing of her thought processes. By the time she's done with that conversation, she has new eyes. Before, she was a naked creature, quite like the animals in her simplicity. But there was something to be found in her reason and in her calculations that began to change when she had this conversation with the serpent in whom the devil was having a part. Did God really say? 
casting into doubt God's very goodness. You shall not surely die. Did he really say? Parsing the words and the language of God. And of course we know that he appears again to Jesus in the New Testament. And it's interesting the difference between his conversation with Eve and of course we all know the subsequent fall of all humankind the atrocious reversal of fortune for animals for the natural order of things was thrown out of whack by their eating and disobedience and we're here we have Jesus who has come to rectify this first conversation who has come to put to rest Satan's did he really say and Satan appears to Jesus after fasting and being alone in the desert and we have in the first encounter with Eve a challenge to his word with Jesus we have a challenge of God's authority and a call to misuse God's power. Because remember, Christ is the Son of God. And unlike Eve, who didn't have a response to Satan, except to answer his questions and have her vision shifted, Jesus, of course, answers with knowledge, and with verse. Because remember, by the time he gets here, the new the old testament has been written and applied. He is a fulfillment uh in Christian ethos, mythos, and logos and pathos of the fulfillment of the old testament. So unlike Eve, Jesus has a response. When he says, hey, you're hungry, you've been fasting, get these stones and turn them into bread. Jesus has an appropriate response. Man should not live by bread alone. When he tells them, you know, the second temptation, uh, all these kingdoms can be yours. Christ has an answer from the scriptures. So the three temptations that Satan presents, the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life, pride in his own gifts, you know, hurry yourself down, or, you know, uh, surely he'll send his angels to, to take care of you. Bow down before me, and I'll give you all these magnificent kingdoms. There's a shortcut to the will of God. You don't have to die on the cross. Come on. Did he really say that's the only way you could get? Famous last words, right? But Jesus has a response and finally tells him to flee. And once he tells Satan to flee, having used scripture and his own self-restraint and resistance to temptation, keeping his eyes unchanged and his focus on the will of God, Satan flees. Eve, however, in the garden by herself, 
didn't have the wherewithal, didn't have the Old Testament, didn't have the knowledge with which to combat the evil temptation of the serpent inhabited by Satan, this crafty animal. Who knows how long the serpent had been thinking these thoughts, and then the devil gets into it and manipulates it. Because remember, we often forget this, the serpent is also punished along with Adam and Eve. He's not um, seen as an innocent victim. He also suffers a punishment, losing his legs, becoming dumb and mute and slithering on the ground. So in these two instances of conversations with the devil, we see a master manipulator. We see a being of power. And we see a being of intelligence. Even if it's an intelligence that we don't uh, openly hold in esteem. All right? Because remember, temptation is about offering you what you do want. It's not about offering you what you don't want. Right? But Satan or the devil figures large in a lot of texts, in a lot of literature. We have, you know, Foss and, and Goethe and, you know, this German work with Mephistopheles and um, this idea of, which is kind of like hearkening to the Garden of Eden, this man in Foss who is bored, basically, is suffering a great crisis of malaise and wanting more than uh, than the knowledge that he has, that he's been blessed to have, and making a deal with the devil. And achieving, well, in, in, in Goethe's version, going to hell. But in some versions, uh, being saved by God's grace and mercy, a la the Garden of Eden story all over again. We think, how could Adam and Eve have been so stupid, so careless? But in our own lives, in our own placements, in our own times, what are we doing to get more knowledge? To get the things that we want, the lust of life, the lust of the flesh, and the lust for power and pride of life. It's not enough to be a good singer. We want to be the best singer. So these things appeal to us because this temptation lies in the human heart, right? So then we get to Dante's Inferno. And we, we get to Milton's Paradise Lost. Dante first, Milton after. But we have these two opposing views of, of, of Satan as a literary character. So in Paradise Lost, um, Satan is a rebel to the end. He's an anti-hero. He's strong. He's courageous. He rallies his troops. He makes speeches kind of a la Mark Antony about, 
you know, how we're going to continue our mission. Right? Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. And what I like about Paradise Lost, or what's perhaps even troubling about Paradise Lost and Milton's reworking of the devil is his own self-awareness. The devil in Paradise Lost is aware that he's fallen and that he's wretched. And he's aware that there's a place of grace if you only ask for it. But his pride, that damn pride, would not allow him to do it. O son, he says, to tell thee how I hate thy beams that bring to my remembrance from what state I fell. How glorious once above thy spear to pride and ambition threw me down. The Milton Satan is a tragic figure wanting to go back, esteeming God's character and his highness, recognizing it, but yet unable to allow himself to go back to ask for forgiveness. And then in Dante's Inferno, we have a crying, muted, blind, almost lifeless, totally isolated Satan. He is upside down in hell with three faces, a bloody mouth, and pretty much encased and made inert. The wind from his wings as they beat endlessly circled throughout the levels of Dante's hell where there is fire and brimstone, there is suffering, there is uh, eternal agony. But for the devil himself, he's kind of been frozen. He is where he landed. He is where he fell. But in, even in his fallen state in Dante, his evil it's worldwide, right? It's still out there. It's still bringing souls to the levels and the rings of hell. Dante says, He wept with all six eyes, and the tears fell over his three chins, mingled with bloody foam. Here we have a devil who is pathetic I mean blind, isolated, frozen bound in ice monstrous, ugly, deformed who is not reigning so much in hell as inhabiting it as one of uh, the fallen and this is not a, a, a a version of the devil that's really popular in our popular culture you know the tv show lucifer for instance he's active engaged witty charming reigning in his hell 
I don't think that humans like the idea of a passive uh, bound Satan because then the question becomes, why is there still so much evil? If Satan and his angels are bound and captured, who then is at fault for the evil in the world? And then we go to the more popular works, for instance, like Stephen King's Randall Flagg, who is prominent in The Stand. And is featured in nine other works in the Stephen King universe. Um, he is timeless. If you think about that Rolling Stones song, uh, I've been around for a long, long time. I've got wealth. I've got taste. I've got all the trappings of this world. And like our biblical Satan, Randall Flagg is uh, a chaotic evil. Purposely bringing down anything good. He is a figure in the Gunslinger series. The Man in Black, whom Roland is chasing who is um, trying to stop him from healing and resetting the world, Roland being a savior figure with his band of three. And then we have the devil and Tom Walker by Hawthorne. which is a story about man's greed. And I noted as I reread it for this podcast that uh, the character of Tom is like, I'll do anything, but I don't really want to be a slaver, right? Um, um, and the devil's like, okay, okay, well, you know, here, just go be a money lender. That's, that's one way to ruin people's lives. But um, him stopping short of saying, I don't, I don't want to uh, be part of the slave trade. And in this story, the devil gets his due. As pious as Tom had become and tried to become, reading the Bible, having the Bible at hand, um, his broken heart in terms of his own greed, right? And the lack of justice and sympathy and empathy for his fellow man becomes his undoing. And as soon as he gives the devil entree, there he is to get the soul that he's been waiting to get. And then I'm going to wrap it up with a perplexing story, also from the Bible, of Job. Now, Job, we are told, is a man after God's own heart. And the text tells us that the devil had come from walking to and fro. He's entering before the presence of God. He has, you know, um, the right to enter therein. More like Milton's Satan, certainly, than the bound Dante Satan, because he has free reign. Uh, and also, of course, more like the biblical Satan, in that, yes, he has reign. He can walk to and fro. He found a man named Job. 
who had all the blessings, all the good things, kids, livestock, a wife, large family, respect of his community, good friends. And the devil says, <laughs> he would curse you if you removed all of that bounty and blessing that you've given him. And God says, mm, not Job. The devil says, yeah, Job. And so they set a wager. The devil is prevented from taking Job's life for any other tragedy he can inflict. And so Job becomes the epitome of suffering. His kids are killed. His livestock taken. His wife snaps at him. Why don't you just curse God and die? Just be done with it. His friends say, hey, you can't be innocent, dude. All these bad things are happening to you. Look, you did something. And Job is like, no, I didn't. I, I you know, I can't think of one thing that I could have done. And everybody around him is like, you did something. In your heart of hearts, come on, Job. You did something. And the story both shows a nature of God that's a little disturbing. It harkens back to our recent text, things like when bad things happen to good people, because Job was certainly good people. And he's being allowed to suffer. His body's being allowed to be covered with sores and ugh. I mean, he just, he's a wretch. I mean, he is a wretch. I can't imagine how stinky and gross and purient and putrescent his body had become as Satan began to inflict these balls and yeesh. And when he laments to God, and when God finally answered, the answer appears to our human minds as cold. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who are you to ask me why are you suffering? Reading Job can be a hard read. Because we don't get the compassionate answer. And yet Job, in a sense, stands up to the bullying of both parties. Of God and the devil. In a sense, by his own righteousness. By the fact that he doesn't curse God. So therefore, negating the devil's argument and by the fact that he calls God on the carpet for the undeserved injustice. I'm not sure who wins in the book of Job. At the end, he is restored, he's cleansed, he's got more kids, uh, presumably a new house, more livestock, more servants. 
But I often wonder, for the rest of his days, if Job didn't have nightmares about his first batch of kids, his first wife, little puppies and lambs that he had raised from infancy who would take it away. If he didn't walk on a certain amount of eggshells about the next time he could be called into play. And maybe that's a lesson for us. Maybe that's a lesson for Job. And for many characters, false being one, that we shouldn't seek an understanding beyond our own mind. When we do, it allows for those temptations to come in. But remember, Job didn't have Christ. He didn't have someone who had the answers and could respond. He had to suffer it out. So surely the idea of evil the idea of a satanic force of God's own adversary, of his own nemesis, is writ large across most cultures. There is an antagonist and a protagonist in most cultures. Mankind has been grappling with our fall from an imagined state of perfection to one where we have bodies that decay greed, avarice, where we slay our brother and then haughtily ask, am I my brother's keeper? Where we rape and pillage, where we crucify God's own. And then if there is no devil, From where does evil come? If there's no devil on your left shoulder, where do all your wicked thoughts come from? Where does your malice come from? I think it's hard for us to imagine that it comes from our hearts, right? That in a sense, there's a devil in all of us. I hope you have a great night. And please reach out to me on Facebook. We have not set up a Twitter yet, but we will. Please email me at late night with white at gmail.com. I love your comments. I love replying to you and having that interplay. Thank you to my friend Charles for having that conversation with me about Job that kind of brought my whole thinking and reasoning full circle as I was contemplating tonight's podcast. Hey guys, have a good night.